Hi, welcome to the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. For months, we take time to prepare and educate ourselves on this new adventure of motherhood. But as we all know, once the baby is born, we're still left with so many questions and need all the help we can get. Women really should have a sense of empowerment as they begin to experience these life-changing moments. And no one mother has it all figured out. However, the more informed we are, the better decisions we can make that will positively affect us and our family. And that's what this podcast is about. Sharing honest, raw, and real conversations about motherhood, life, and all of the crazy, messy, beautiful in-betweens to hopefully educate, empower, and support the next mother on her motherhood journey. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. I am on with a very special guest, Miss Lois Letchford, um, who is a literacy problem solver. She specializes in teaching children who struggle with learning to read. Her creative teaching methods vary depending on the reading ability of the student, employing age-appropriate rather than reading age-appropriate material. Lois's non-traditional background, multi-continental exposure, and passion for helping failing students equip her with a unique skill set and perspective. Lois is a literacy spokesperson for struggling learners who have failed behind in the traditional classroom. Through coaching and workshops at international conferences, TV appearances, and highly rated radio stations, she uses her own story in Reversed, a memoir, to teach educators and parents how to create flexible learning environments using comprehensive and innovative teaching methods. Lois, it's a pleasure to have you on. I was so inspired by your your story. I watched your YouTube video. Um, So why don't we kind of dive right into it and tell me a little bit more about who you are, your family life, career, and how that has impacted you as a mother and your motherhood journey. Thank you for being here, for having me here, Nikki. It's just wonderful to talk to you because motherhood is is a life-changing journey. You know, I don't know what we think when we have children, (laughs) but it it, it literally is life-changing. And I'm older, so I'm now a grandmother now. Oh, hard that's to awesome. No, yeah, you look great. But yes, grandmother. And we'll talk a little bit, I guess, once you tell me about your motherhood journey, a little bit of your professional background, tell me what that was like transitioning to being a grandmother. We'll talk about that after. Yes, well, you know, I think of it. I started my career as a physical education teacher. I did that for a few years and I took time off because I got tired of going. I went to school, I went through another school, and I'm back in a school, and life seemed very narrow. So I went to London and worked, and that's where I met my husband. And that move was transformative because. Although I struggled in school, my husband was the absolute opposite and he was the top of the class. And he ended up doing a PhD in Oxford and by that time we're married and I followed him. Mm. And once you follow your husband internationally, it's hard then to find your own feet in it when you come back. And, you know, just even finding a job there and all of that was much more difficult for me. And then I had a child. We had one income. So even starting off, how do you start off with no income or just, you know, we're covering the expenses? Correct. How do you then go for childcare and find a job? 
So what was that? What, what did that do? Because I know, you know, you are older and you're almost glossing over it because it's, it was your life and it was years ago. But I'm sure for any listener and especially I, I'm assuming most of my demographics of listeners, they are women or, or mothers that were like, how the heck did you do that? How did you balance it all and keep your sanity? Because we all know when you have a child, you have to keep moving. This child doesn't care about kind of what's going on. It just lives and breathes with you. How did you balance all of that? Because that's a lot of change. Yes, yes. Um, I started, didn't balance it real well. But in the end is I took 14 years out of the workforce. Mm, okay. And that, you know, that made quite a difference. It allowed my life to be a little bit slower. I don't know that I could have coped with the stress of trying to get children out of the house by 6 or 7 o'clock every morning when they were small and they're non-cooperative you know, and they're doing their own thing and all the rest of it. But that's what happened. I literally took time out and just stayed at home with my children. Uh, then the next problem is as you get older, how do you come back into the workforce? And the stresses in the world has changed. Sure. You so why don't you, oh, so, go, so before we go into that, tell me when you did go back to work, what was your, and I know you said you physical education and things of that, um, First, tell me how many children do you have and kind of their ages and then kind of tell me what career path you ended up going into. Or does it align with your story behind your son? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Definitely an alignment and a total shift and, and all sorts of things happen. But my, um, my sons, one was seven, one was four, and I think then the baby was born. So they're now in their 30s. Wow. Okay. 30s. And like you said, Greg, either married with their own children because you're a grandma. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, yes, yeah. that's right. So what happened was my elder son learned at the speed of light. So quick, drove me nuts. And I really didn't have the skills to deal with him and his behavior. And I should have been more patient. I should have understood his behavior. When children are a bit crazy, you've got to stop and think, What's causing this? What's the emotion behind this? Mm -hmm. Oh, they're excited. That's what's leading them to do crazy things. Let's put a name on it. You're excited. That's why you went and hit out at someone else. Let's say this is excitement. This is what it looks like. How can we manage this better when you're excited? I got you. So you're saying because he learned so fast, it was almost like he was ingesting all of this information and, you know, you're looking at it possibly as, maybe behave, not behavioral issues, but a behavioral thing or what's going on. And when you're looking back, you're like, wait a minute, this kid is learning so fast that he's excited for it. He's happy for it. He's proud of it. He wants to know more. Yes. And that's what I've learned. And, and lack of impulse control mm. was also in, involved. And I just saw that as a behavior problem. He doesn't listen. When we should be looking at more of what's causing the behavior. And for that, as a parent, you've got to stop, take a breath. And, and think before you react. Oh, which we know is very, very, very it's easier said than done. But I think what we're learning, at least we have now, at least mothers of my generation and future, is that there are the tools. We're, we're talking, we're having these conversations to inform mothers that that is what it is. Okay, so your seven-year-old, he learned fast. So tell me about your middle and your youngest. My middle son had ear infections from the age 8 to 18 months. And what struck me was that I could leave him on the change table when I'm changing his diaper and he wouldn't roll, he wouldn't move. And you knew, I knew he wouldn't move. That's a problem. And there were obvious 
auditory problems there. And not only is it auditory, they're not getting the information, then it's not coming out, they're not speaking well. He looked slow, his language is at a lower level, and he's the one who goes to school, he's wetting his pants, biting his fingernails, terrified of going to school. I dress him for school every day, and he's the one who fails first grade. Okay, so tell me, what did that do for you as a parent, as a mother? Um, how did that make you feel at the moment? I really and truly didn't appreciate the depth of struggle that child was going through in first grade. Mm -hmm. And if I had known anything, I should have removed him from school on day six. On day six of school, we go Monday to Friday, so it's the following Monday, the second Monday of school. I spoke to the teacher after school and I said, how's he going? And she just said, oh, you know, oh, this is just so difficult. You know, he can't do a single thing. He's so far behind. I don't know how I'm going to cope with him all year. So that you're saying that should have been almost an indicator that the lights on that if they're if, if look, we're, and I know we put a lot of pressure on teachers. We do. Um, but you're like, if I can't, if, if me and then you can't, then what the heck are we doing here? And I just thought, well, a poor kid will have to deal with it. I also had at that stage the younger son at home mm. and he would have been two. And that's what stopped me from taking him out because I knew Nicholas needed one-on-one -on -one attention. However, I still should have done it. I should have called up my mother-in-law and said, can I come to you every day and deal with Nicholas so that you can look after Isaac or, or something, anything, yeah. anything then leave that child in school. And I'll so tell how you long, go ahead. How long did he end up staying in school before there was a shift? What, what, how was? The whole year. Uh, okay. The whole year. And one day he came to, we'd, I've taken them to school. I've driven them to school. I get them out of the car and he said, mommy, will you take me to my classroom today, please? And I'm tired. The youngest one's not sleeping through and he's heavy. And, and I said to my elder son, would you take Nicholas to the classroom? And it's only later I realised that the teacher was so horrible to him the day before that he couldn't walk into the classroom. Oh, no. Oh. And I can see it in you and hear it. Like it's something that's still like you think back because like being a mother now to a son and just being a mother in general, like I, I understand that, you know, and our biggest, biggest things, at least from what I've gauged in all these conversations I've had with, with women who are mothers is the need to protect our children. And if they're not getting that protection and um, we, failed. we failed, we failed, correct. And the fear of that, um, cause I can still see it. Like you think like, it looks like it's, it's like you think like you knew that you can go back to how many years. And I mean, we'll go into the success and what that turned into the journey. Um, but I can see it's something that you think back that you're like, wow, you know, that it still left that much of a, of an, a lasting um, mark on you. It was obvious Nicholas couldn't tell me what happened. You know, you have a language problem. So then you can't even say, mommy, this is what's happening to me in the classroom. Yeah. You know, he didn't have the words. Yeah. And, nor did, and I didn't know. Anyway, he goes on He goes on to second grade and we had a wonderful teacher mm -hmm. in second grade. She said it won't happen here and it didn't. And about halfway through second grade, we had a family 
change. My husband's now a professor and he has study leave in and he has, he has six months in the UK. So the family go to the UK. We arrive in the UK and they're on holidays for six weeks. So there goes that learning. Now we're down <laughs> to four months. And I decided to help Nicholas at home. Okay. Good. And I start with a series of books called Success for All. They had isolated words on the page, no pictures. You just got to make the sounds, put the sounds together, create a word and read it. He couldn't do it. Mm. And, and actually, before we go into it, were there some, like what made you realize as far as when you say to work with him, to keep him home with you? Because I think it's important for my listeners to hear what were some of their signs or what made you, was it just behavior? Was it that he wasn't reading? What, what wasn't he grasping? Was it social? What were the signs that led you to believe that this is what I have to do? In the classroom the year before, he stared into space. He mm. couldn't take the information in. At the end of the year, that was a really good question, actually. At the end of the first year of school, we have him tested because that's your way into special education. The testing showed he could read 10 words. He had no strengths and he has a low IQ. Mm. So any classroom he's in is going to be a challenge for him because he's not taking in the language that we expect. Ah, and, and, you're, and language is the most, so language is the, is the gatekeeper to all of the other things. Yes. So if he's not, if he's not ingesting it or comprehension of it, then everything else doesn't matter, which is why he's staring into space because he doesn't even know what you're talking about. Yes. Okay. Understood. So now you're like, okay, you, you see a little bit, you're like, all right, I, I understand this. It has to be, let me, let me see what I can do. I can do. That's exactly okay. right. I had no skills. I had no knowledge of teaching reading. Except other than you're a mother and you're like, I'm going to help my son because nobody else is. Exactly. So, and these books, Success for All, failed. I'm starting to get annoyed with my son because he's not learning, which is what we do, which is wrong. Sure. And my mother-in-law was with us and she said, Lois, put away what's not learning and make learning fun. Okay, make learning fun. What do I have to do? Ah, I can write a poem. He can rhyme words and he can see patterns. Let's write a little poem. That first poem I wrote was transformative because I'm not expecting my son to do anything except follow along and listen. And we did that. And then we found the rhyming words. Then we created a picture. And it was a transformative moment in my teaching. Mm -hmm. This became fun. You write one poem and the next and the next and every poem became more fun. And we're mm. always looking for the illustration to do 3D, you know, layers of paper. And we did one with a windmill on the hill, looking through a window. You see the windmill on the hill because hill and mill rhyme. Uh -huh. And we, we got a packet that we had clear plastic to make a wind, the window. And, you know, simple things like that. Oh, this was fun for him. And eventually the double O comes up, as in look, book and cook. And instead of talking about cooking and looking, I wrote about Captain James Cook, the last of the great explorers. Mm. And uh, there was a, a, you know, whatever the poem was. And while we're doing this, we found a world map printed in 1550 and I looked at it and said, look, Nicholas, there's no Australia. There's a gap in the map. And then we asked, you know, what knowledge did Captain Cook have mm -hmm. in 1770 when he left England? 
And while we're doing this, my Nicholas with this low IQ says, and who came before Captain Cook? And I said, that's easy. That was Christopher Columbus. <laughs> and he said, and who came before Columbus? Now I know I'm not dealing with a child with a low IQ. Correct. Because he's, he's, I mean, I think of my own three-year-old son to put the, to think backwards. I mean, that's a lot of comprehension because at this time he's second grade. So what is he? Eight, maybe eight, nine, seven, seven, eight. Okay. So he's, so you're like, wait a minute, my child doesn't have these issues. It's he's wasn't processing what was being told him. Everything was too confusing for him. Exactly. And if I, you read anything about Captain Cook to him from a book, I'd lose him. You know, he, he would just put his head down and his eyes okay. would go away because the words were coming at too fast, too much speed for him to be able to take it in. So my task then was to read whatever I had to read, turn that into a poem, and then we would go back to the poem and recite it and repeat it, find the right words, find what's the comprehension of this, what's this poem actually saying. You know, and I did one about the world was flat and, you know, just amazing things that I had to do. And I'm, you know, here's me. I grew up dyslexic unknowingly. I could read words in school I couldn't comprehend. And now as I'm teaching Nicholas, for the first time in my life, I'm saying I had problems. Oh, so it made you register what what you had and the issues possibly he had, except I guess you, maybe yours wasn't on the level that he had. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. You That's understand good. it. Yes. That's wow. exactly right. Yes. So then what, how long was that? How long were you his teacher for? Tell me. So as these things are connecting with him, um, because again, I know we're glossing over, but because it's a moment in time, but I'm sure, you know, every day and going through this with him and reciting this, what was that like? You know, how long were you his teacher for? You know, what? what tell me. Four months, just oh. four months. But because you're in England, Every day we're seeing something new. We're experiencing Oxford is phenomenal. You turn a corner and there's some plaque to some historian. And so we're not only learning in the classroom, it's going wider than that. Mm. So when when you guys would be at the store, if you guys are shopping, you're pointing out things to him and he's comprehending and understanding as opposed, basically, isn't there a term for it now? You are unlearning. (laughs) Immersion. Immersion. And we happened to visit friends in York and we were at Bolton Abbey and that was fine. I let Nicholas out of the classroom one day a little bit early and he turned on the TV to BBC Two. And then the next thing I hear is, Mum, Mum, you've got to come, you've got to come. We've been there, we've been there. And it was the place we'd been to in Bolton Abbey was on the TV. And it was showing what had happened in there over the years. And from there, we learn about the Gutenberg Bible. Now, the Gutenberg Bible had connected to the mapping because, <laughs> you know, and it just, and then, you know, we because we're in Oxford, um, you know, we're looking at these maps and we looked at the map that Columbus had to help him go across the Atlantic Ocean. And that was the map of Ptolemy. And we go to the Bodleian Library and say, where would we see a Ptolemy map? The lady leans down from behind the gift counter, picks up a book and plocks it on the table and says, this is a book of Ptolemy maps, that'll be five pound, please. (laughs) 
So, you know, there were just so many things that happened and incidences and learning, even though I'm still stressed about Nicholas's progress, I can see his growth in learning was going through the roof. Yeah. So you're, and so basically the four months is while you're over at the UK and then you come back to, was it America? Was Australia. That Oh, Australia, Here in Australia. Right. Okay. Come yes. back to Australia. I talked to the person who'd done the testing over 12 months ago and I said, he's learned so much. It's so exciting. And she stands there and she says, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. No, that's what she said to you? Yes. <gasps> so what did you yes. say? What did you do? I left. I said nothing. But I came back to school within a couple of hours and said, you can call him whatever you like. But if he is the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching, don't expect him to learn like everybody else. Mm. You're projecting this on him without helping. So you're already labeling something that you don't even know. I needed my experience in Oxford to understand my son and to understand her comment. And without that, I think I could have been flawed but she could only see a child who'd failed. She didn't see this child with this phenomenal questioning and phenomenal thinking. And, you know, I remember the things that we saw in Oxford. What amazed me was Nicholas's interest in things. Just rocked me for a seven-year-old child. Sure. So, So that was the start. And then the reading teacher blew it. The reading teacher sends Nicholas home, you know, these things called sight words, the words children just have to supposedly learn. (laughs) She gave Nicholas the same two sentences she gave every other child in her care. That's problem number one. Mm -hmm. Problem number two, to learn the word saw, she gave the sentence, I saw a cat climb up a tree and I saw a man rob a bank. This kid has just spent six months in another country and she's talking about cats climbing up trees. (laughs) Oh, boy. And then thirdly, she's given an incomplete demonstration is what the language they use in the literature. The word saw has three meanings and she's only given the abstract. My son's on the autism spectrum to a degree and he's only seeing the concrete. He's cutting the cat in half and she's looking at looking. And she Mm. didn't show him how the written language works. Between the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching and I saw a cat, I became a reading specialist. Uh, so there you said, okay, what do I have to do to not only teach this child to read? Sure, teach us how to, to read because I know that now you know for sure, for sure it's in your hands and you have to be the one to do it. But I'm assuming also the same, especially going through it, that you could help other children the same way. And teaching reading to someone who struggles so much with language is not as simple as we think. It's not just a matter of learning the letters and sounds. And we have a very narrow view of how to teach reading. And then I, as I said, I grew up reading words without comprehending. And no one bothered. Oh, she's not very smart. Yeah. So, you know, it was dynamic from a number of ways. And then I did go back and I went back to... Uh, education and I became a literacy specialist. I did two years for graduate diploma and that was that was critical. And that reading was fantastic. And now so I'm switching from now just being a mother into working as well. And it came at a crossroads. What am I going to do now? My children are getting ready to go to school and 
finding Nicholas in that path was just wonderful. Wow. I, no, yeah, go ahead. That It became a passion. It's more than just I have to teach kids to read, you know, and I'm doing it just to earn money. I'm doing it because I want to and need to. Sure. So then basically you becoming a reading specialist now, did you continue to keep him in school, but then you not tutored him, but worked with him at home or when you could or okay. okay. Yes. Yes. And what I, uh, what I did was as Nicholas came home with homework and I noticed a problem, I then had the next day to work out an activity so that when he came home from school, we could do it in 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. Limited time because he was tired. He's exhausted from school and the concentration and effort and all of it. I can do this now in this period of time. And then it was all over. And within months of coming back to Australia, he's reading independently. Wow. I want to ask briefly, and then we can go back. Did he experience any bullying? He just withdrew. No. No, he didn't experience bullying. He was just so isolated. No one spoke to him That's at right. all outside of the classroom. Which is a, almost like a, I don't know, maybe not a formal sense of bullying, but that is, right? Because no one has come up to him like, hey, Nicholas, how are you? What's going on? Because now they've just completely isolated. Like they don't want to have anything to do with him. I cry really even now over the school's response to my son. Why did they allow it to happen? day in and day out, yeah. why didn't they just provide a mentor or someone to sit with him and say, you don't have to talk to Nicholas, but just be a friend, just hold his hand, sure. do something to show that he is okay. Yeah, and that's, oh, man, that's so tough. I mean, again, I know, I mean, you said your children are in their 30s now, and, and I know um, Nicholas's story specifically, you know, he ends up going to Oxford, I believe, himself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So yes. Yeah, so let's, so, okay. So now he's, re you see tremendous difference. He's reading. Now you become this reading specialist. How did that turn into you creating, writing your memoir reversed? Or did that come before, <laughs> after, you know, how many years did you become this reading specialist that you're like, okay, because I'm sure did Nicholas still have still some struggles or as he was reading, it just, it worked. Oh, you are just wonderful. Yes. Oh. You picked up on all of it. <laughs> Well, you know, I followed my husband. What happened was the next move was from Brisbane, Australia to Lubbock, Texas. Okay. Oh. <laughs> and in Lubbock, Texas, Nicholas was in the fifth grade when we left Australia. He went back into the fourth, so he's repeating for a second time. And in Lubbock, he goes from the bottom to the top. Uh -huh. And in my story, reverse, there's nine factors that happened in Lubbock that would not have happened in Brisbane, Australia. And it's really worth reading to see what changes occurred to help make those big jumps. Ah, so tell me culturally, despite even because, yes, I'm, I'm very interested um, in reading that and understanding that. But what cultural difference was like that for your family? <laughs> Texas, like that's it's not New York, it's not even California where there's culture and a lot of city life. California's not really city, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of people. What was it like going to Texas? It's a university town. Ah, okay. So that particular town or city in Texas. Okay. So I'm thinking like Dallas or Houston. Ah, so it's a, it's a, okay. And you can do everything you can do in Dallas or Houston only within 10 minutes. 
because it was so tiny. <laughs> it was tiny, but you had to drive, you know, five or six hours to get to the next town. And even that, all of it just made a difference. What a university town does is it brings the power and the importance of education. And the university is dependent on the high school and the middle school, and the middle school and high school dependent on the universities. So you actually, and and any university town, you've got high flyers who are interested in their children becoming successful. So you've got the science fairs. I mean, the things that you have. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah, so that they bridge together because they're well, no, because they want the success. They want them to come, so they want them to succeed. Yes, yes. So, how long did you stay in Texas? through, was it all your children that graduated high school from through there? Except for the youngest. The youngest, Nicholas did from grade four to grade 12. And the youngest did from grade one to grade nine. And the eldest just left Texas about a month ago. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. So did they go, did they end up going to that university first or no? Eldest did. And we left Australia when Nicholas finished, graduated high school. Wow. Okay. Nice. Okay. So um, things change, you move, and obviously there was a significant positive um, significance that, that the move made. It was positive or what I like to call the divine yes. intervention that it just yes. kind of worked and, and, and it worked. Um, did you become a reading specialist for the town? Were you doing what you were doing there? <laughs> I met the first person I met or group of was a mother whose 13-year-old son was non-reading. He'd spent four years where every day she'd taken him to a reading program and he'd come out non-reading, unable to read a sentence accurately and with comprehension. And I said to her, I think I know what to do. I taught the boy over the summer. The school district paid me. At the end of the summer, the mother writes to the school district and says, you employ this woman or I sue you. I got employed. And from then on, I stood between the school district and lawsuits. Wow. Now, do you see, um, and I'll get a little, um, do you see, or maybe it doesn't matter what race, read, religion, parents of low income, like of, of low income or that don't have I guess what I'm trying to say is there's dyslexia, which are things that are, I guess it's inherent. It's, it's, it's a yes. thing, but are there also levels of low income where they're not maybe, or, you know, what, let me rephrase this. What could, what can parents that might not have the funds to do certain things? What are some tips and strategies that they can do for their, for their children? Because oh, do you see that correlation that if you do come from a low income um, background that they're still, they're, they're going to be struggles there? Yes. Use your culture. Your culture is very important. Write and read the poems of your culture. Let the child see themselves in literature. That's a good book. That's a good, that's a good point. So even if you can't afford it, go to the library, check out books of where they're particularly from to make it interesting so they can see themselves and want to learn and all of that will come through it. Talk to your parents and your grandparents. Write their conversations down, particularly if the child's there with you. Write down a little conversations. We spoke to grandma today, da-da-da-da-da, or we talked with grandma today. Grandma said dot, dot, and dot. And she might have said it in Spanish or, or another language. Write it down in Spanish. Write it down in English. Wow. Take a picture. 
so that okay. you're connecting the picture and the language. Wow, that's so like little things, but you're like, wow, I can imagine that making the difference of that. Um, I also know that I, I've read, you know, that they say talking to your children um, like they're little adults and not like the baby language. And that's something I um, attest to my husband. I mean, I, I felt that way too, but when we had our son, he was like, look, we're going to talk to him like he's an adult, you know, as far as much he can understand since he was young. And my son knows he's three. Since he was a year old, we're like responsibilities, your clothes go in the hamper. And from the moment he could walk and he'll say, oh, I have my responsibilities. And I say consequences and really making him understand and not shushing him when he has a question and working through me seeing his little brain. So talk briefly about the importance of that. It goes hand in hand with reading books. The language that we use in oral language is actually a very small number of words. Book language multiplies that, that we and we don't use those words. But if you start using them in, it's seeing them in books, and then you start bringing them into your oral language, you made a connection. But it's the breadth of language that we have in the children's books that makes reading so powerful and so important. Mm, understood. Um, so tell me, when when a person has dyslexia. Is it something they carry with them for the rest of their life? Is it something you still have to struggle with? Do you have to pause? Or once you learn how to, and I don't want to say deal with it, so please forgive me if that's not the right word, but once you've learned to accept it, you know how to work with it, what is that process like? Awful. Oh. <laughs> oh. Live with, you live with it forever. You know, and my, my dyslexia is fairly significant, and it impacts me not being able to tell left and right, losing things, word blindness. Wow. Can't read. I cannot read my own writing. I have to put it through read, please. It's frustrating. Wow. So it's still something you have to continuously work through. Now, are there different levels? Because you're saying yours is understanding left and right and different levels of dyslexia. Yeah. Yeah, my son, my son is worse in a way, but he's had better training and a better education. That makes a difference. But when you get stressed or tired, and then then you notice the symptoms getting, you don't have the brand the bandwidth to cope with it. And see, even my speech sometimes is a problem. Mm. It's not always clear, and my thinking goes round and round. And then you start a sentence, then start another sentence, finish the thought. <laughs> No, but I can imagine, wow, so it is something you work continuously at and something that you have to deal work. with. Now, and I hope this isn't so, but maybe, um, do they give drugs for dyslexia? Do they? Oh, if only there was a drug for it, it would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no drugs because okay. it's a brain wiring issue and it's a language issue. It, you know, it's a language processing issue. So, you, and teaching of it is critical. The earlier you get onto it, the better. The earlier you overcome the problems, the more, the more quickly you learn with the, everybody else. But the more you hang back, the harder it is to catch up. And then, and, I, then that's when the behavioral issues come, and then that's when they want to give the drugs because then they're giving drugs to. Um, to solve a problem that isn't really the problem. The problem is because of the dyslexia or whatever maybe learning disability they have. Yeah, that's mm. exactly. Oh, which is so sad because then they're taking something that isn't that. It's, oh man. 
And, you know, I'm in touch with numerous people who have dyslexia and the number of adults that now coming out and saying, hey, I realise I'm dyslexic. You know, this is why I didn't learn in school. And your life choices are often limited. I survived because I could read words. These people can't read words. Then they don't have the comprehension and then they don't get the intervention. And what can you do when you can't read and write effectively? Oh, sure. And then you can't or be a, a member of society. And then going back to my original thought, if you come from a background that is low income, then even for sure your, your opportunities are even more so limited. Yes. I was, I, my background is low, low socioeconomic. And my education experience up until eighth grade was like that. But I switched schools because of my mother. My mother said my daughters are being educated. We were on a farm and our cousins have all been educated, but we were in this low socioeconomic area. And if I hadn't switched schools, my choices and education would have dropped enormously. Wow. Wow. Mothers, mothers drive education. And a child's success depends on a mother's drive. Oh, gosh, that's so powerful and so true, Um, which then even leads to why us as women and and mothers have some of the stressors that we have, because we we feel it and we understand, you know, um, all that entails, especially when we're trying to do what's best for our children. And oh, man, um, um, so much uh, to your mother for recognizing that and understanding that and to you, because look how that, you know, then transcended into you for you saying, no, not only is he going to a different school, because maybe at the time you didn't have that choice. You're like, no, I'm going to do this myself and I'm going to figure out what the problem is and I'm going to fix this. You know, as I said, my husband, you know, was very smart. We are living three kilometers from the university or the school is three kilometers from the university. It's the school everyone wants to go to. And they failed with my son. It blows me away still today that they were so accepting of the failure of the child. And God help you if you don't have the support and the knowledge that I had with a child like Nicholas. Because just because Nicholas had language problems, Nicholas is therefore dumb. Sorry, that's the language that they were really trying to push into me. Sure, that's in essence what they were telling you. Your, son, your yes. son's dumb. There's nothing we can do. Sorry. Nicholas was brilliant at doing puzzles. No one cared. No one cared that he could do puzzles really well. And he's got spatial awareness that places him on the 99th percentile of the population. Phonemic awareness and language structure and grammar places him on the bottom five. You've got this diametrically opposed situation. And if we didn't have the privilege, he wouldn't have got out of that situation. Yeah. And that's, and how many children do we leave behind who are like that? Sure. We don't know. So tell me what has been your process or what that journey has been like with you being, I'm sure, fulfilled in helping, I'm sure, as many students as you can. Because I'm sure, based on your story and based on the experiences you had you try to help everyone, which, you know, we can't. So tell me, you know, about that journey has been like in, in your fulfillment for you to help the students you've been able to help. Well, I wrote the book. I wrote the book because Nicholas's story just kept getting better and better and better and better. So yeah. that was that was really important, that he's a role model and that when we write children off, I can say, yes, we can. 
And said, no, it's mm. okay. We can, yes, we can. I've written a reading program. I've connected with someone else, a reading writing program called Russell Brand Van Brocklin, because without him, I wouldn't have been able to write a reading writing program. So, and this is for older children who failed, and it starts with engagement. Because if we don't have engagement of the child, we don't have anything. And too many reading programs, you've got to learn these letters and sounds. And the first thing we do is disengage the child and say, you. And the moment we put it on to you, we've lost the child again. Mm. We've got to start with how do we engage this child. And I always start with do they understand words with multiple meaning? Simple things. And I picked up a 16-year-old from Houston and he'd spent four years in a specialist dyslexic school. And the first thing I said to him is give me a sense with the word T-O. And he says, I've got two lizards the same. Even the, the, the sentence of that is not grammatically correct. Give me a sentence with four. And he so, tells me I have four grey shark's teeth. Why can't this child read? Because he hasn't understood the difference between T-O and T-W-O and F-O-R and F-O-U-R. Mm. This is foundational stuff. This is not magic. And the second thing I do is take a, uh, a book, a text, and something like Aliens Ate My Homework, and I turn the dialogue into a play, and I make every pronoun meaningful. And here's my big, my big, I'm proud of this moment. <laughs> I, Because I'm dyslexic, I can't write something for an academic paper and have it published. But I've got the knowledge. Because I make too many errors, I don't get it right. I don't do it the right way. So I connected with Professor Tim Rosinski, who's a name you may or may not know. If you're in reading education, you know it. And he's an emeritus professor. And I said, would you publish with me? And I wrote this paper on pronoun resolution and it's about to come out in The Reading Teacher. And The Reading Teacher is a prime magazine for the International Literacy Association. And it's been called a seminal paper on text cohesion that hasn't been talked about for 35 years. Oh, wow. Congratulations. And when will that be coming? Well, when we post this, you can tell me how, like, could, a, could someone like myself subscribe or get the publication yes. or understand? Okay. And it's about $35 a year, I think, for to a apply to the to be a member of the International Literacy Association and get the reading teacher. It's not that expensive. A reading teacher. And it's something and it, that can benefit everyone. Everyone. Every okay. and it based, you know, the simple part. <laughs> I don't know how much you want me to go to the word like it is such a complicated meaning. But we teach it, here's it, learn it. As opposed to when you come to the word it what does it mean? And every time you come to it, you as the reader know it means something. Mm. And you just have to teach kids that rather than expecting that knowledge to happen. Yeah, I'm always interested in learning things like that, because I'm also a firm believer that, and again, I think my generation and past that because our parents had no choice, it's like they kind of left up the school to kind of teach yes. <laughs> the children. Yes. Um, yes. And again, just doing the best with what they had at the time, you know, my parents were two hardworking parents, so they did not really have the time to kind of focus. Um, and not only were they not only was my mother working parents at home, but she also was a caregiver to her parents, right, um, for many years. 
Yeah. So there was a lot of that going on. And I know um, I'm not alone in that or isolated because whether single parents, whatever the case may be. And it just wasn't what it was done back then. I think, again, now we have so many more resources, um, whether good or bad, because some of it also, as we know, could be wrong or whatever the case may be. But um, I'm always interested in learning what is out there, because like I said, I think I, I'm a firm believer that it's not just the classroom, but we have to be mindful, the mindful parenting of what we're doing, because really, truly, what they're learning at home. Um, and it's, it's, it's less of, you know, do as I say, or, you know, that, that quote, because um, we can teach that we can, we can talk to them all day and saying this and this, but if we're not emulating it, or if we're not taking the time to engage with them, then it's kind of almost forget it, forget it correct, you know, because it's not really registering. Um, so thank you for that. I will list it. And then when I post this, I'll also list just resources of a parent who wants a, a resource of understanding of things that they can have, or if they have, if this resonates with them, because they have a child who may have, you know, some learning disabilities or, or, um, if some of this is resonating with them. So tell me though, I want you to talk to me about your son. So he, so tell me the good. So tell me where he ends up before we get into some other, because I know you're so proud of him. Like you said, it was to show to, so his story can be inspiring. So other children can see, wow, you know, look where he came from to what he achieved. Tell me what your son has achieved. What is he doing? All of that good stuff. Hey, Completed two undergraduate degrees. He took five and a half years to do two undergraduate degrees and he took a degree in mathematics and another degree in engineering. First class honours for both of them. And he did it in Australia because, again, we followed my husband and his work. And in Australia, you don't have to do the common years. So he did five and a half years of mathematics and engineering. Wow. Good for him. And then ended up going to Oxford. Then Oxford, he, did a, he had a scholarship to do a PhD in applied mathematics. And in 2018, he graduated, which is when we had the videos done. Wow. Oh, and I saw that in the YouTube video, <laughs> which I will also post a link to that. It was so inspiring. Let me ask, have you ever reached out to some of the older teachers that he had? Yes. Or yes. did they reach out to you? We re No, we, we went back to his third grade teacher, Mrs. Raspaskovsky, because we love Mrs. Raspaskovsky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she he told her that you know he'd gone on and she he just yes we connected with her we connected with the school the deputy principal who was there when my boys was there was still there and we gave them a book of his graduation I wanted to get in touch with his fourth grade teacher because her school report is in there and because she also loved Nicholas and saw his strength but I haven't been able to find her mm. I've been back to Lubbock and I wrote Lubbock High Lubbock School District. I said all the positive things that happened because we were in Lubbock. That's good. That's awesome. I'm sure eventually someone would appreciate that. And when was your book published? I don't 2000, know, 2018. Nicholas, oh, okay. this, is the, this is the interesting part. My boys grew up very close to their grandparents. The night before Nicholas graduated, his grandmother died. Very sad. Yes. We'll always remember her death date, but she was influential, highly influential in my boy's life. And that was your mother-in-law, you said, or your mother? Yeah. My mother-in-law. Mm. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. My mother-in-law is a phenomenal woman. Phenomenal. You, know, you said, like you said, for her to tell you that and to tell you, like, no, yeah. you know, find out your son, you know, and, and figure this out and take it. Yeah. She was fantastic. You know, she had MS. She's been in a wheelchair from 1988. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So he graduates 2018, gotcha. And that's when your book is published. So all of that. No, I'm so excited to read it. So tell my listeners, where can people get a copy of your book? Amazon.com is the best place to grab a copy. Uh, The audio book is now available and that's available on my website and on Amazon, available on both. If you go through my website, all of the profits come to me. I read it. So I hope you enjoy it. Can people also purchase the book, though, on your website? The uh, e-book, e- but not the not okay. the paperback or the hardback because okay. that goes through their printing system. Ah, okay. The publisher understood. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Okay, so um, any other tips or anything that you want to say before we kind of get into my kind of fun get to know of, <laughs> of Lois? Anything you want to say on this? Any Anything you, you felt that you, you need to kind of leave a word? When children struggle with reading, just believe in them. Keep believing. Don't blame them. Believe them. And for children to learn successfully, they must be happy. So if children are stressed and coming home from school stressed, throw it out. It's not working. You want them relaxed. You want them enjoying it. You want them laughing then that it's about memory as much as it is about everything else. Mm. And, then they're, a- and then they're bridging the memory, the happy moment with it, with the learning aspect. You've got it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it sounds so like, duh, yes. but it's, but again, we struggle with it now understanding or, you know, as again, being as a parent, because we have all the stressors and all the things that come with it, it's not always something easy to do. And we immediately want to put it on the child, like it's the child's fault when they had nothing to do with this. Can I tell you something interesting? After Nicholas graduated, I thought, now I'll talk to him about his early years. And I said, Nicholas, tell me what happened in first grade. My son with a PhD, confident and articulate, cried. And not one word came out of his mouth. That's the impact of failure on a child. Oh, and that's, and think about it. He's seven. So you think, oh, maybe over some time. And like you said, PhD, he's overcome this and he should be immensely. (laughs) But look how. um, Damaging. The energy and PTSD, almost like the post-traumatic stress of dealing with that. Then I said to him, well, don't talk about that. Tell me about what happened in Oxford. And he laughed. He laughed and he said, and he named the poems we learned. And he said, and I'll never forget the mapping. The mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. And then he giggled and he said, but, but you, wrote, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell and he's giggling, just laughing, laughing and laughing. And he said, and I wrote the ingredients to that and it was just so funny. And that he remembered all of that. I didn't put that in my book. Because I didn't deem my poem worthy enough and I ignored the power of the emotion that came with that poem and writing the ingredients to the witch's spell. Wow. And look at that. And he's telling you how many 20-something years later, 30, that he's like, oh, yeah, that was impactful. That'll have to be in your next book. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, and actually, what is next for Lois? What's, what's next for you? I know you mentioned, you know, the reading teacher and what's that's coming, which is phenomenal. And you should be very proud of that. But what is next for you? What, what's on your radar? I'm working with the 16-year-old and I want to write his story up. But because I'm dyslexic, A, it takes longer and B, I've got to pay for the editing. 
and I've used my husband extensively and I don't, I'm not doing it until I pay for it by myself. So please buy a book so that I can write the next book and pay for the editing, not to come to me, but to pay the editor. I love that. I love that. Um, no, I, I love it. Okay, Lois, let's get into right. what yes. is your favorite book or one to recommend, which I think I know. Walk in the Woods, okay. Boys in the Boat, Longitude, and my kid's book, Diary of the Killer Cat. Ah, I love it. What's your favorite, um, I don't know if you know like hacks, but what's a favorite like organizational or something that kind of organizational hack or something that gets you like you do this and it gets you, it sets you right? I don't have that. I'm not good at organization. So I have a husband who keeps me on track. <laughs> well, there you go. No, that works. Hey, <laughs> that works as well. What is your favorite word? Cacophony. Which? Cacophony or cacophonous. What does that mean? Cacophonous chorus. It's discordant sounds that come together. Ah, like a cacophony it. of birds or the one I have is a cacophonous chorus of all these um, giants and witches and crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. What has motherhood, and I will also say being a grandmother, taught you? Time flies. Mm -hmm. Enjoy every moment because the next minute you know is you're 60. Yeah. And how old are your grandchildren, may I ask? Well, I have no grandchildren directly from me, so I have my neighbours' children, ah. two little Japanese boys. So when I was listening to you, you know, they are isolated here, but I'm grandma for them, and it's oh. just wonderful. They're bilingual. It's Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And people need to embrace, you know, I was listening to you with the community, embrace them. Because my little little Japanese neighbour, she takes her boy to gymnastics and no one talks to her. Because of boys in gymnastics? No, because she's Japanese. Um, she's not like you. She's not like me. She's Japanese. So no one talks to her. So how we isolate people so quickly, particularly if they just look a bit different, talk to them share with them, say hello to them, take time with them. And, yes, it is nicer to be with our friends, but it's also great to include others. Oh, no, that's so beautiful. And um, I actually did a speaking engagement on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion because um, I'm an accountant by profession. And part of this organization, long story short, I, I, I ended my spiel with that of saying, you know, to really get out of your comfort zone, to really build the empathy, to really understand and make way. We have to connect with one another. And if that means talking to someone you might not normally talk with at a Starbucks line or um, engage with someone just to say hello can make all the difference in the world. You, you might realize more times than not that you have more in common than you think. Yes. And we do have a lot in common other than the colour of our skin, hair and eyes. A thousand percent. Um, but that's awesome that you've taken on that role. Okay, so I, I, I understand you now, but that's, that's beautiful that, you, that, that they feel that from you, that you take yes. some ownership of that to know that that, that, is, that is wonderful. And that truly is the definition of um, community and the type of community I wish would, would, would happen. Yes. Um, any other final thoughts, Lois? Anything, anything. Just what you said earlier in yours, it takes a village to raise a child. Include people in that village, reach out to others and find the village. If your mother's at home, particularly reach out. You put your email there, reach out to others and find support. Don't be isolated. 
because it's it's too hard in this world on your own. Oh, a thousand percent. Thank you so much, Lois, for coming on, for sharing your story. I will be purchasing your book. Um, and once uh, this goes up on my platform, I will list all of your information in the show notes um, where people can reach out to you, where people can purchase the book. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lois, for coming on. Thank you for having me, Nikki. Thank you for joining me this week on the Mamas Know Best, We Got Something to Say podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, NGC Consulting, where you can find them at NicoleGConsulting.com. For more motherhood resources, check out TheMotherhoodVillage.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss an episode. And if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or recommendation to a friend works too. And join us next time for another amazing conversation. Continued blessings to you all for love and light.